Good morning. Appreciate the opportunity to uh, be able to speak again in front of you. Um, let's turn our Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. So this morning, honestly, this is a lesson I've been wanting to, I've been thinking about for a while. Uh, I just haven't, hadn't pulled the trigger on it yet. And it was basically, uh, if I had to title it, I would call it the Savior's Sacrifice. Usually, usually in the church, when we talk about Christ's sacrifice, we, just, we talk about his sacrifice on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. But today, I wanted to get into it more detailed, if I could. And I wanted to dig into the Old Testament more because I wanted to see what the meaning was behind this sacrifice. Because I think so often we may, we may look over that. Um, we, may not, uh, we may not think about where this all came from. All right? You know, this, this whole idea of Jesus dying on the cross, why was that important? Um, why is that important to us? Also, why is that important to God? So I kind of wanted to look at this, uh, that this morning and really... Um, the sacrifice starts in the very beginning. It starts with the, the first human beings. It starts, it starts out basically with, the, uh, uh, with Adam and Eve in the garden. And so it starts really with the first, uh, the first offense, the first disobedience against God. And I know it, a lot of times we read that passage um, and we can, we can look back at that passage and we can think, well, we see that through the eyes of the New Testament at this point, all right? But back then, it really was obscure. When Adam and Eve had disobeyed God, so basically, verses, uh, verses 1 through 20 of, of chapter 3 are basically their deception. So Eve listens to the serpent who, said, who basically deceives her enough to where she eats, from the, uh, eats one of the fruit of the tree of life, and then therefore Adam as well, and then they, they are cursed by God. Then at the end of this, after they're cursing, uh, that, the serpent as well. So the serpent, Adam and Eve, all the things that they're going to go through now and what's basically been unleashed on the world because of their sin, immediately after that, in verse 21, he says, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now, if we were to read in the Bible, if we started at Genesis 3, let's say, or Genesis 1, and read up to this point, and we had never heard anything else about, about the Bible, we'd never heard anything in the New Testament, any, and we'd never read into the Old Testament at all, we might just, we might glance over this, this passage and not think much of it. But at this point, after they've sinned against God, immediately... They've been offered, it says, tunics of skin and clothed them. Now, obviously, at this point in the scripture, in order to get that skin, something had to die. Because remember, there was no sin and death yet until this point. So something had to die in order to get these skins. I don't believe, and honestly, it is obscure in this passage, but at the same time, I don't believe that God just made skins by themselves, by themselves knowing the rest of the scripture and knowing God, I don't believe that he just made a skin. I would imagine that something had to die in order to obtain that skin to cover Adam and Eve. But at this moment, 
we get a hint of the way God treated sin. We get a hint of atonement. We get basically, and, and let me stop for a second. So atonement is basically making a reparation, making, uh, striking the balance for, some, for a wrongdoing. We might even, it, a synonymous word would be like restitution, like paying back. Like I did something wrong, let's say I stole something and I pay back. And we know it like in the Old Testament, there was, restitution was a big thing as far as if you stole or if you did something wrong, it was paid back. And usually it wasn't paid like item for item. You paid back multiple times, whether it be four times the amount you stole or seven times the amount you stole. There was, a, there was basically a making the situation right. So that's basically what atonement is. But in this passage, we get an idea of God's response to sin and him offering some sort of atonement for it. So this is just a hint at the time, all right? But as we move on in the book of Genesis and also later in the Old Testament, we start to see a trend of, of what God wants as far as a sacrifice, what God wants as far as sin and atonement. We get into, uh, we get into Genesis chapter 4, we start to see now Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. We, start to, we hear about another sacrifice. We go to Genesis chapter 4, we'll read verses 3 through 5. And it says, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Now we start to get just a little bit more of a glimpse of of what God looks at as, uh, as what he, he thinks is a respectable offering. Notice that, and we might read over this, but it says, of the firstborn of his flock, in verse 4. So this had to be something special. It, it, if I could relate it to something, it's not the crumbs off the table, it was the main piece, right? So there was an importance to it. Something had to be special, all right? And also, the fact that it was... It was something living that was offered. Now, as we've obviously read through more of the Old Testament, we see there's offerings of things that don't have life to them. There were grain offerings, there were drink offerings, and so on and so forth. There are some offerings and sacrifices that, that weren't necessarily blood sacrifices. But we see, uh, we see at this time, though, this, this was special, this was important to God, and obviously it says that Abel's sacrifice was respected. So we get kind of a more of a glimpse of what the sacrifice was and what was pleasing to God. Then we go on to, to uh, Noah in Genesis chapter 8. Uh, in verse 20 and 21, this is after the flood. This is after they, that had subsided. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal. Notice the life there that's being sacrificed. Took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I, had never again, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor, I, will, I, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. So notice how, once again, this animal sacrifice was pleasing to God. God had wanted this. Now, as we, we notice that there has been no thus saith the Lord so far, right? So far in the scripture, I haven't seen God specifically ask for this. 
But for some odd reason, they knew that this was pleasing to God and this, was something, this, this appeared to be their custom. All right? So we see more and more how it's pleasing to God. We see more details of, of what the sacrifice should be. And as we move on to Genesis chapter 22, uh, we get into Abraham and Isaac. We're familiar with this. And once again, we, we, were, we come upon another sacrifice. But this, this time, now that we've read the New Testament, we can see the future implications of this passage. But you've got to remember, at this time, they didn't necessarily have all the info that we have now. All right? So in some ways, in some ways, they're looking forward blindly but at the same time, in faith and hope. So let's read Genesis chapter 22. I'm going to kind of jump around in here a little bit. I'm going to start at verses 1 and 2. It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take your own, now your own son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. So do we already see the future implications? Abraham, offer your one and only son, the son that you love. Obviously, that's something, this is well beyond giving up an animal out of your flock. This is, this is beyond giving of the firstborn of a sheep or a goat or whatever God might have required later on in the Old Testament. He was asking him to sacrifice, and therefore he would have to kill his only son. Verse 6. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. And we're going to Later on in the lesson, we're going to revisit verse 8. Now into verse 13, he says, Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him... Now this is after, this is basically after God had stopped him from sacrificing his son. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its, by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So we can, we, now that we've, we're in New Testament times, we understand this whole idea of someone giving their only son, how important that was, sacrificing their only son. So do we kind of see now in the New Testament, looking back, you know, the shadow of good things to come? This was in a way, a prophecy of what was going to happen in the future. And something, and we may, we may kind of read this and not pick this up, but notice how these sacrifices, some of these sacrifices were provided for them, right? Notice there's one thing, and we'll look at this a little bit later on. We notice that God provides, some of the important sacrifices, God provides those things, all right? So even further on, we start to get more details of what the sacrifice should be in order to be pleasing to God. And we start to see relationship between blood and God's protection from punishment and death, from which we're about to read. So we start to see this specifically. And we also see God's providing the prescription for rescue from judgment 
because of his love. We see qualifications for the sacrifices. We're about to read the next couple passages, and we start to see specifically blood offers for blood offered for sins and atonement. Remember that reparations, that making situations right. All right. So let's go to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. This is basically the Passover, not the actual, not necessarily the actual feast, but the starting of it in the um, God's uh, prescribed um, process for this. So remember, there's still the children of Israel still are still in Egypt at this point, and they've gone through a multitude of plagues, and they're about to go through the last one, and God's providing basically the prescription for their own protection. Exodus 12, we'll start in verse 1. He says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. According, and let's keep that in mind. He's taking for himself a lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for, for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb, now listen, this is important detail. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. That's a very important detail. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled, boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall, not, you shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So shall you eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. Verse 12, For I will pass through the land on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now listen. Verse 13, now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So notice that. So we have, <clears throat> we have a lamb without blemish, and this is going to be an important point later on. We have a lamb without blemish. And here's a side note. Just think as you're receiving this for the first time. All right, lamb without blemish. Not just, okay, hey, I'll pick one out of the flock, but he was specific and detailed about this. So basically, this thing had to be clean. And then they were going to kill it and take the blood and, and put it on the doorpost. So when he saw that, they would pass over, hence the term the Passover. And then nobody would die in that household. Do we start to see now in the New Testament, looking back at this, how this is the shadow of things to come, as Hebrews says. We know the rest of the story, basically, that there were many who died in Egypt, but the ones, the children of Israel says nobody had died because they had the blood on the doorpost. 
Leviticus chapter 5, verses 5 through 10. This is just one more detail in regards to the sacrifice. And I'm going to read 5 through 10 here. He says, And it shall be, when he is guilty in any of these matters, that he shall confess that he has sinned in this thing. So I, I want to stop right here, and I just thought it was interesting. So this is, this is talking about atonement for sin. So he just got done listing a bunch of sins. I wasn't going to go over every single one of them because there's actually a couple in here that we're about to go over. But I thought it was interesting to note that confession of sins was also important in the Old Testament before there was any atonement for sins. Notice how that, hasn't, that really hasn't changed. So an individual could try and offer a sacrifice. Now, this wouldn't make sense, but they could offer a sacrifice. But if there was no confession, how could there have been forgiveness of sins? So do you see how there was, there was also confession of sin in the process of being forgiven? I just thought that was uh, worthy to note. So I'll read that again. And it shall be when he is guilty in any of these matters, which he just listed a bunch of sins, verses 1 through 5, that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing. And he shall bring a trespass offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a kid of the goats, as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin. If he is not able to bring a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord for his for his trespass, his trespass, which he has committed, two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. And he shall bring them to the priest, who shall offer that which is for the sin offering first, and wring off its head from its neck, but shall not divide it completely. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, and the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering." And he shall offer the second as a burnt offering according to the prescribed manner. So the priest, listen to this. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin which he committed, and it shall be forgiven him. So notice, now that we've gone through a lot of these verses in the Old Testament, do we get a really good idea of what pleases God when it, when it comes to basically atoning and, and paying, essentially paying back for sin? Something living had to die. And there was, there, was, there was blood had to be shed, as we can see in just about every example. Um, <clears throat> something living had to die. Blood had to be shed. Um, and there was something specific about that sacrifice. It, it couldn't just be just one of them. It had to be something special. So now we, we basically understand what was pleasing, and this is pleasing in the eyes of God. So now that we understand some of that, what I want to do is I want to start moving forward to the New Testament and making an application for this. Um, there must be a sacrifice of blood to atone or make up for our wrongdoing and our sins and offenses. And according to, and Joe read this this morning, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 uh, Paul states this, and this is an older New Testament uh, verse, to tell you the truth. And according to law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. So we can't have any forgiveness without the shedding of blood. <clears throat> and really, the ultimate goal in, in our relationship with God is to have our sins forgiven. That's the ultimate goal, because we can't go to heaven unless our sins are forgiven. It's, it's just that simple. So 
that's our, that's our aim is to have our sins forgiven and share that with other people so that they can have their sins forgiven too. So ultimately, that's God's goal. And do we kind of see how God's providing this uh, prescribed path as we kind of look through these things? He's been, and he's been planning this all along. You know, when you think about it, this, is, this has been planned since before the foundation of the world. That God planned, because of his love for us, to, to have a way and to show us the way and to pave the way for us to go to heaven. Now we have our part to do in it. But he's been planning this all along. And he's been telling us all along since, since Adam and Eve. He's been providing the way. So the goal is for us for essentially to gain forgiveness of sins. Now what I want to look at this morning, I'm going to start in Hebrews chapter 10. And this is now basically Paul's take, now that we're in the New Testament, this is his take on the Old Testament and the sacrifices, what they had basically meant. You know, what they were, what they were for, what they were the shadow of. Hebrews chapter 10, <clears throat> verses 1 through 10. He said, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. So what he's trying to say is, they were doing this year after year, but they were, they were pushing their sins back. They weren't actually getting erased. They were just pushing them back and pushing them back and pushing them back. And it was a continual sacrifice year after year after year. You know, as a side note, can you imagine have the, the hassle of continually having to do these sacrifices? These are not clean things. You know, one, finding an animal that was right, that would be good, you know, without spot or blemish, continually year after year. And then remember all these people and these families and the, the, the children of Israel, think about how many animals they had to slaughter every year to basically achieve atonement and to push their sins back. This is a, this is a lot going on. This is difficult stuff. And it's still, as in verse 1, it says, it couldn't make them, it couldn't make those who approach perfect. So they needed that true sacrifice. Verse 2, for then would they not have ceased to, to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For, listen to this, verse 4, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Notice why we need Jesus. Verse 5, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices, sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings, and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That was the sacrifice that was fully pleasing to God was Christ. And it was, it was once for all. Jesus didn't have to die continually year after year after year after year. It was, it was a one and done thing. 
So we wouldn't have to continually do this and have this hassle year after year, and we could actually have our sins forgiven. All right? And with Jesus dying on the cross, if we notice like in Matthew 26, 26, how he basically says that this is the, the covenant um, that's brought about from the shedding of my blood. He brings about the new covenant. So we don't have all these things we have to do anymore. So the Old Testament sacrifices were a shadow of the things to come. They were symbolic of what was going to happen in the future. And they were an example of what God required, but they were not the real deal, as we just read in Hebrews. They had to be continually offered, but with Christ's sacrifice, never again. So we're sanctified, we're set apart by the offering of a sacrifice on the cross. So just as God had, it, one thing that, remember we talked about earlier that God has always done is he's always provided that sacrifice. So just like with Adam and Eve, he provided the coverings. Just like with Abraham and Isaac, he provided the ram that was caught in the thickets. So with us, he provided that sacrifice. He sent his son and provided a sacrifice for mankind as well. So and notice this wasn't done by man. It wasn't done by mankind. This was done by God because he loves us. I can't help but think of uh, John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave. I think we look over that a lot. He gave that. He gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. He was looking to do this and send the son as a sacrifice so we could be connected with him and have our sins forgiven and not have to face eternal death. You know, I thought it's also worthy to note that this was done like of Christ's own accord. You know, when I read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, you know, it, he talks in this passage about the mind of Christ. And he refers to him basically coming to earth. He said, let this mind be in you, verse 5, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. I just think it's interesting to note that, I mean, think about what we assume heaven to be like. You know, it, it's, we refer to it as paradise giving that up to come down to the sinful world and put on flesh and become a man and now have to face everything that mankind faces, good or bad. He humbled himself. You'd have to, I'd imagine, because a lot of us, wouldn't we be like, man, I don't want to go back there. Why would I, after we've tasted this right here, this life, and all the stuff that we have to put up with it, and we, we go to heaven... Who would want to go back here? Who'd want to come back? None of us would. But in order for him to help save us, he humbled himself to do that. Now, I said it, it, it says, you know, have this mind in you, but look at the humility and the love for, for his people by doing that. And also, verse 8 is going to lead into the, uh, the next point. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. I want to focus on that. He humbled himself and became obedient. So it's important when 
when we're talking about a sacrifice. Remember we talked about the, the lamb without spot or blemish. And that meant something. Now that we take that Old Testament example and we apply it to the New Testament. So what does that mean to be without spot or blemish? Well, when we look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, he says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Remember, because Jesus has been in the flesh. He faced everything we had, we've faced. But was in all points tempted as we are. So every sin, think about that. And I'll just stop right here. Every sin that we've committed or every, every temptation, even if we've, excuse me, even if we have resisted temptation and not sinned, Everything that we've been tempted with, Jesus has been tempted with. If we've been tempted to steal or to lust or to whatever it is, he's had to face and deny that temptation. All right? And therefore, he stayed away from sin. He lived the perfect sinless life. And it says in verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 4, he says, yet he's without sin. That's how Jesus stayed the lamb without spot or blemish. Because otherwise, if he sinned, he's just another guy that's getting crucified on the cross. He's, he'd be with uh, the other two that were on the cross, and he'd just be another one of them. He'd just be another hoodlum, whatever you want to call him. Just another guy dying on the cross, and then we have no hope. You know, we have nobody, uh, nobody to die on our behalf for our sins. We're lost. But he stayed that spotless lamb of God. You know, and I can't help but think of, you know, how did he do that? Well, we look at the temptation in the desert, and we'll just kind of skim through this. We won't read the whole thing. But in Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 1, remember, he was led out into the, led by the Spirit out in the wilderness uh, to be tempted by the devil. It's interesting, like, he was basically, we're basically going to get tempted by the devil, knowing this is going to happen. And here's another thing, if you just want to, this is like insult to injury. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, I can barely go without food for a day. And he's going without food for 40 days and 40 nights. Can you imagine what that would do possibly to your, your judgment, your, your thinking? Can you imagine what, you know, the duress that you'd be under after going without food for that long. That's a long time. So that, along with being tempted by Satan himself directly. Verse 3 says, Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you're the Son of God, command these, breads to, this, um, these stones to become bread. You know, basically, hey, do this and, you know, if you're the Son of God. But he responds to the temptation to sin. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So just think, this guy who's probably super hungry is like, hey, don't forget, you could make this turn into bread right here. Can you imagine? Now, right now, it's not a big deal. We probably all ate breakfast this morning. Not a big deal, right? But think to a guy that's hungry, he's like, yeah, I could do that. And I could have something to eat right now. But he didn't. Then the, de the devil took him into the, the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, 
lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took, him, took upon him an exceedingly high, took him upon an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered him. So it's just, it's interesting. I'm sure this is not the only time Jesus was tempted, but at least this is in the scripture. This is the one of the few documentations where he was actually directly tempted with sin and he, he stood his ground and didn't sin. So essentially he was preserving the sacrifice so that it could be, so it could be pure, so it could be without spot and without blemish by the time it got to the cross, by the time he got to his death. So with that, just to kind of wrap this up, so notice that with that, God provided the ultimate sacrifice from himself. And I think that's interesting. God basically took on flesh. You know, it wasn't just like, well, hey, I'll choose you and you, you go do this for me. God basically, he took on flesh. He had to live the perfect life and he had to go die on the cross and raise again. So God did this all himself. He did all the work because he loves us. He kept the sacrifice pure, remaining sinless, and then finally dying on the cross, and then obviously rising again the third day. He did this because of his love for us. If he didn't, if he didn't do this, we'd have no way to get to heaven and escape eternal death. Think about back to, back to Egypt. They could have never escaped that final plague unless they had the blood on the doorpost, which made him basically overlook them and pass over them, hence the term the Passover. So if we didn't have Jesus dying on the cross, we couldn't escape this. So this was the sacrifice that was pleasing to God. This was the real sacrifice. So really, what's, what's our response? How do we respond to that? Well, basically, if, by going through all this, we've basically presented a longer form of the gospel. You know, especially if, if, you're not, if you're not one who's a follower of Christ, God has provided a sacrifice for you like he's done for all the rest of us who are saved. But you haven't contacted or connected with that sacrifice. And I'm, I'll tell you how. We've basically gone over this gospel just now. So basically, Jesus Christ came to earth. We'll, we'll kind of condense uh, the lesson. Jesus Christ came to earth. He put on flesh and he lived a sinless life. Remember, he was that spotless lamb of God to be sacrificed on the cross. And he died on the cross for our sins, and he rose again the third day. You must believe this. You know, Hebrews 11.6 says, uh, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In John 3.16, as we read earlier, he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So we have to believe in him if we want eternal life, if we want our sins forgiven. And he said in John 8, 24, he said, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You must believe that Jesus Christ is God's son. And then you must repent. Luke 13, 3 says, I tell you no, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. We have to have a change. We have to choose God's ways now rather than our old ways. We have to have a change of mind and a change of heart and a change of action that we're going to follow God's purpose and not our own.
if we want to have our sins forgiven. We've got to confess. Notice that we talked about earlier in the book of Levit Leviticus, verse five, uh, 5, verse 5, that even though someone would offer a sacrifice, if they didn't confess their sin, that was part of this prescribed method of having their sins forgiven. Well, in order to have our sins forgiven, we have to confess. We have to confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, as it says in Romans 10, 9 and 10. It says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You must confess that Jesus is Lord of your life. And finally, you must be baptized uh, for, the, for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts 2.38. Then Peter said to him, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You've got to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, as well as uh, believing, confessing, and repenting. These must happen. And then all of us have to remain faithful until death. To remain faithful is to be following God with all your heart till your last breath. So that's the prescription for being saved. And today, if you need help, whether it's contacting the blood um, through these steps and through baptize, uh, being baptized, or if you need the prayers of the church, we're here ready to assist you as we sing a song of invitation.